Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. Welcome to Utterly Moderate, where two reasonable social scientists try to tackle the biggest issues of the day. I'm Allison Dagnus, a political scientist. And I am Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How are you doing today, Allie? You know what? I am I'm feeling great because it's sunny outside and warm, and it feels like it's just going to keep on getting warmer. But maybe that's because of climate change. Because oh, today's topic... Wow. Is exactly that. I know, right? I just slid that right in there. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a segue. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Remind me to tell you about riding a segue once about Toronto. It was quite the experience. Sounds but like a disaster. It was a terrible disaster. Yeah. <laughs> I, I almost killed small children and drove through a plate glass window. <laughs> um, and I thought I'd look cute and I saw footage afterwards and I didn't. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Emily Cloyd, who is the director for the Center for Public Engagement with Science and Technology at AAAS, which is the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Emily, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for joining us, Emily. We're we're really uh, happy to have you here because we neither of us is an expert in this area, so we're we're happy to have you. If you could, could you begin telling us? what you do and why it is so vital right now, especially? Sure. So I work for a Center for Public Engagement. Our primary goal is to support scientists to engage with members of the public about the research that they do, and particularly about the way that science and society interact. So some of what I do is training scientists in best practices or promising practices for science communication and for having conversations with a wide variety of audiences. One of the things that's really important is understanding that the public is not a single block, but it's really, you know, like the three of us here, it's all real people. And so as you think about how you engage, you really need to think about how are you having a conversation? And so we're providing tools for scientists to have conversations about the ways that science affects our everyday lives and affects some of the big questions and the big issues that face our society. It feels to me like many of the scientists that I've known since I was a kid, because I had a bunch of friends whose parents were scientists at NIH and um, that they had the attitude of like, leave me alone, let me get to my research. And that just today feels like it would bump heads with this highly mediated, let's get your research out there to explain it to the public, to sell it to the public, because it's not only that integration that is really important for society, but also for scientists in terms of funding and, you know, providing that linkage that's so vital, I think. Has that been a, like a tough sell for you? Or do you think these days scientists are just so hip? They're like, okay, I'm ready. You know, I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson and I'm ready to go. <laughs> I think every scientist is comfortable in engaging in a different way. So for some scientists, 
They're very excited to talk with members of the public about their research. For others, as you said, they like to be in the lab and be, you know, sort of undisturbed, not really uh, engaging a lot with the public. One of the things that I try to do in working with scientists is help them think about how their research is relevant for society and think about what are the ways that they would like to engage. Not every way of communication is right for every scientist. And so a lot of what I'm doing is helping them find the path that makes sense for them and helping them think about how their research is relevant for society, even if they're not planning to be out having a lot of conversations with members of the public about their work. Before we get started into some of the questions about, you know, the, the Paris Agreement and whether we're on track and those sorts of things, let's just start more generally and talk about what climate change is. So, um, some people think that you know, carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide and methane and all these gases are are bad things, but they're good, but right in a certain chemistry in a certain amount. So can you explain sort of what climate change is, what drives it and, and why it's concerning? The reason that we are able to have life on Earth is because we have these things called greenhouse gases, things like carbon dioxide, water vapor, methane, that are in the atmosphere. And when the sun shines and energy from the sun uh, comes to our atmosphere, those gases help trap some of the warmth near the surface of the earth. And that makes it warm enough for us and for all of the other uh, life on earth to survive. What happens when we have climate change is that more of those greenhouse gases are present. So it's like taking a blanket and wrapping an extra blanket around the earth and it just makes it warmer than it has been in the past. And it makes it warmer in a way that takes it outside of the context of how we as humans, as our species has um, basically built our culture, built our society. And it affects not just us, it affects the other species that live on Earth. And so as we think about climate change, as we think about uh, what is sometimes called global warming, it's really adding to that layer of gases, making that sort of a thicker blanket that's keeping the planet warmer than it has been in the past. Now, we'll talk about the Paris Agreement in a moment, but the goals of the Paris Agreement are, and there are a number of goals, but uh, one of them is to keep global temperatures from rising uh, above two degrees above what pre-industrial temperatures were and really to keep it to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And it may not sound like a lot, you know, a half of a degree, uh, but it actually is. Let me read you a quote from the National Resources Defense Council. And in this quote, they're actually um, partially quoting an IPCC report. And they note that limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees rather than 2 degrees could reduce the number of people exposed to climate-related risks and susceptible to poverty by up to several hundred million by 2050. 
That means hundreds of millions of people being able to avoid flooding, food scarcity, superstorms, deadly heat, and widespread disease. At 1.5 degrees, the number of people across the globe at risk of inadequate water supplies could be 50% lower than at 2 degrees, the report concludes. Twice as many plant species and three times as many insects, which are critical to our food supply, could lose at least half their habitat under a 2 degree versus a 1.5 degree rise. Missing that 1.5 degree target would mean substantially more lives lost and ruined, more strain on economies. It turns out that every half a degree of warming, or even a tenth of a degree, matters quite a bit. End quote. So again, you know, the Paris Agreement intends to keep warming below that two degrees, but really we're looking at 1.5 degrees Celsius. So Emily, here's where the rubber meets the road. My question for you is, are we on track to meet those targets? Right now, the level of emissions that we have here in the United States, the level of emissions that are occurring around the globe have us on track to not meet that 1.5 degree uh, Celsius goal. Right now, we are warming much more quickly than that. And so we do have to make changes in our emissions in the way that we are both emitting greenhouse gases and or the way that we are sequestering those greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere. If 1.5 is the goal and 2 degrees is the absolute max that we want, but we'd like to keep it to 1.5, you say we're not headed in the right direction. So I know you can't pinpoint a particular number, but uh, what range of rise are we looking at? I mean, where are we headed? Instead of 1.5, what could it possibly be at this rate? Right now, the way that emissions are trending here in the U.S. and around the world, we are on track to see a rise of around 4 degrees Celsius or about 7 degrees Fahrenheit by the year 2100. Did you say Uh, 4 degrees? I said four degrees. Holy moly. That seems um, like a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You're alarming us here, Emily. Yeah. (laughs) Talk us off the ledge. I mean, that that sounds bad. It does sound bad, but we have an opportunity right now to make choices about our emissions, to make choices about uh, how we essentially see climate change play out into the future. So if we make a change in our emissions, we could limit that to about two degrees Celsius, maybe a little bit less, uh, close to that one and a half degrees Celsius mark that is the goal of the of the Paris Agreement. Right now, as I said, we have an opportunity to change the way that we are emitting and the path that we're on in terms of climate change. It is definitely not too late. Um, As you see climate change deniers uh, from kind of everyday Americans straight through to members of Congress who will bring a snowball 
into a hearing and say, it's snowing outside, there's no global warming. Um, how do you push back against that kind of misinformation? We have multiple lines of independent evidence that tell us how the climate is changing. Scientists have looked at things like ice cores that tell us what temperatures were in the past, what the composition of the atmosphere was in the past. And we have a wide variety of other lines of evidence that have told us how climate has continued to change. So it's not a single piece of evidence that's telling us. It's actually all of these different things that help us understand how the climate is changing and what it might look like in the future. Now's a good time to point our readers to a report that AAAS put out a few years ago called What We Know. You can find that um, just by a quick Google search, um, which did a really good job of summarizing all of the research about climate change into a really accessible, very short document for just the general audience to read. Uh, but here's a quote from that report. They say, let us be clear, based on well-established evidence, about 97% of climate scientists conclude that humans are changing the climate. This widespread agreement is documented not by a single study, but by a converging stream of evidence over the past two decades from polls of scientists, content analyses of peer-reviewed literature, and from public statements issued by virtually every expert scientific membership organization on this topic. The evidence is overwhelming. End quote. The problem, and I think, Allie, this is what you are at least somewhat alluding to, and I know it's something you're very concerned about, is that in our fractured media environment, where people are in ideological silos, they're in information silos and echo chambers, um, this information just isn't getting to a lot of people because they're consuming partisan news all day long. And the polls bear that out. So here's a few recent polls from the Pew Research Center. Um, they asked U.S. adults whether global climate change should be a top priority. 67% of Democrats or folks who lean Democrats said yes. Only 21% of people who were Republican or leaning Republican. When they asked people if Earth was warming because of human activity, which again is what the scientific consensus says, it's a good sign that 53% of U.S. adults in that Pew survey said yes. But uh, while overwhelming majorities of people who were Democrat or leaning Democrat um, agreed with that. Only 18% of people who were conservative Republican and 39% of people who were moderate Republicans agreed with that. They asked a different question um, or they looked at it in a different way. They asked this question, you know, is the earth warming due to human activity? But they broke it down into different groups, not just in terms of political orientation, but also um, how much science knowledge people had. And so for Democrats, you know, only 49% of people with low science knowledge said that, yes, it's warming due to human activity, but 93% of people with high science knowledge said it was, but it had no effect on the Republican side, right? So regardless of whether you were low, medium, or high in terms of your science knowledge, um, you know, very few people were willing to say, yes, the earth is warming due to human activity. So I think this is really what, Ali, you're concerned about is that this information just isn't getting to folks in our fractured media, envi media environment. Um, you know, like I said, partisan news sources, 
information silos, ideological silos, you know, bubbles, echo chambers, etc. We should be clear. I mean, all of us want to look for information that makes us feel good. And all of us interpret information in a way that confirms our, our values and our beliefs and our existing worldview. We exclude stuff and we avoid stuff, which might question our identities and all that kind of stuff. So, I'm not suggesting this is like something that's reserved for one side of the aisle or another. Where it becomes dangerous, though, is when uh, you have media landscapes that are so that are so fractured, right? Mm-hmm. And that are so partisan that I, I'm not even sure this message is getting through. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of how our modern media landscape might not even be allowing this message to penetrate? The you know the the short of it is that because our technology allows us to have so many different platforms and so many different media outlets, it also allows us to pick the specific kind of news and information we want to get. And that's called confirmation bias when you go out and you actively seek out the kind of um, the kind of data that that's going to make you feel good, the kind of thing that reaffirms what you already believe. And so there have been a lot of studies that have been done about this. And what most of those studies have found is that Americans, because we have so many options and we are just awash in content, we are very careful to select the things that appeal to us the most. And so that can be um, an all sports diet that could be just house and garden television um, and decorating shows, or it can be news that slants to the left or news that slants to the right. And on the right, uh, they have done, conservatives have done just a really terrific job of establishing different types of platforms. So there's, you know, Fox News on cable and now Newsmax and OANN. And then on the radio is talk radio with Rush Limbaugh and um, Sean Hannity and, and then, you know, different websites like Breitbart and Newsmax um, and Daily Caller, uh, they all reaffirm the messaging that the others are giving. And in this way, it's a little bit different than the mainstream media or even the liberal media, uh, because they are there to kind of promote a message. And that's actually in their mission statements. They're, They're pretty straightforward about this. And the message that they're putting forward um, tends to be that the mainstream media are all liberally biased and that you shouldn't believe what it is that they're saying and that they are hysterical about specific issues, um, particularly those involving either race or um, uh, different government programs. And in this case, they bang the gong pretty loudly that the mainstream media and the leftist press are absolutely hysterical about climate change. And therefore, it is not something that needs to be taken all that seriously. And so they don't. And whenever it is addressed, most of the time, it's with a very mocking tone. But really, it just is not addressed at all. And therefore, their audiences come away with the idea that A, climate change is a joke. And B, it really doesn't matter because of what's known as gatekeeping, which is the function of the media that selects what news they're going to 
emphasize and highlight and um, discuss. And so if you hear an awful lot about Hunter Biden's laptop, but you don't hear anything about global warming, um, it is very natural to believe that one thing is important and the other isn't. And so within all this fractured media, um, what you end up seeing are real big divisions in how conservatives and moderates and liberals actually understand the issue of climate change and how much they think uh, a remedy is necessary. Well, yeah. And, and Emily, I think your point is is valid, which is, you know, because, uh, you know, we mentioned these psychological tendencies, but there's also um, a lot of research which suggests that even the, the biggest partisans, if presented with enough information, you know, enough facts, enough times over and over and over again, even the biggest partisans can change their mind, right? They're not just sort of locked into one worldview forever. I guess uh, where I'm going with this is just this idea that um, in, a, in our current media landscape, the, the idea that you're going to meet people and, 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 and experts and, and you're going you're gonna to see these ideas which don't confirm your beliefs, which contradict them and, and present you facts that, that say something else, it's just becoming less and less likely. Right. So I, I think, and, and, and Ali, I want to hear what you have to say about this, but I mean, I think you can go through, I, th- I know, I know people, I know I used to be like this when I was younger. I mean, you can go through an entire day without going to a legitimate news site or news source, right? So you could wake up and, and you could watch, you know, Fox and Friends or whatever the MSNBC equivalent of that is. Um, you could go to your partisan sites, whether it's Breitbart or Huffington Post or, you know, um, you know, what, what's the, uh, the Drudge Report? Is that, that's what's one of them, right? Um, yeah. you know, at night you could turn on one of these, uh, talking head shows, uh, and never really meet information that contradicts your, your faulty beliefs about climate. So that's what I'm really concerned about. Cause Emily, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, and again, I think research clearly backs up what you have to say which is if enough people that you trust and that you, you have faith in tell you otherwise, even the biggest partisans can change their mind, but that's becoming increasingly less likely in our ideological silos, information silos, et cetera. Another problem is it's not even that partisans can pick which flavor of information they get, but also that you can opt out of any information at all. And so there's a very large segment of the population that's hearing nothing about climate change because they're also hearing nothing of substance. So, you know, these days with, um, you know, with the the kooky internet that the kids are using and um, all the streaming services and, and, you know, different forms of uh, satellite radio and streaming services for music and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you could, you know, you can go an entire day and not only not hear an opposing thought, but never hear a thought at all. Because if you just want to listen to Post Malone and, you know, and watch YouTube videos of cats, you can have that diet every day and never run out of content. And that is something that's also really new. You know, Allie, if you really want to sound like a get off my lawn type of person, um, you should call it the internet. You should put the in front of everything. Can I also, can I call it the Facebook and say (laughs) that it's on the interwebs as well? It's a series of tubes. It's the Twitter. <laughs> you kids and your Insta. I know you. Your TikToks, your flip flops, your Snapchats. 
Before we move on, I just want to point our listeners to two books that uh, do a really great job of talking about some of the things that Allie and I just outlined in terms of partisan media and confirmation bias. One is called Post-Truth by Lee McIntyre, and another is called The Death of Expertise by Tom Nichols. So, I have seen a lot of discussion amongst people who may not know what the Paris Agreement is, that it was really great that President Trump got us out of the Paris Agreement. And so, I I, I feel like that... Um, speaks to a different set of problems, which is that we have shrunk very big issues and questions and answers down to basically code. Um, so could you explain in just sort of layman's terms what the Paris Agreement did and then the benefits of reinstating it, which I think President-elect Biden has every intention of doing? The way that the Paris Agreement works is that the parties to the agreement, there are 196 parties, agree to make changes within their own countries, within their own economies, to the ways in which they emit greenhouse gases. Each country determines what they will do in order to achieve the goals that they set. Overall, of course, there is the goal for the Paris Agreement of limiting climate change to well below two degrees Celsius and really to one and a half degrees Celsius. But it is up to the individual countries to make their plans for how they will reach that goal. So while it is a legally binding international treaty, each country sets the terms of how they will get to the marker that they have set collectively. So each country sets this five-year goal for climate action. It's called a nationally determined contribution. So the country says, these are the actions that we will take to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and to help us reach the goals of the Paris Agreement. And they communicate about those uh, commitments to other members of the Paris Agreement, so the 196 countries, and also to the people who live in their countries. So they want to talk about the actions they're taking and really sort of toot their own horns about how they're taking action on climate change. And then at the end of five years, they evaluate, they readjust their plans. They look at if they've been successful. And then they make the next five-year commitment. And the other important piece of this is that countries are supporting one another. So part of the Paris Agreement has been uh, financial, technical, and capacity building support and collaboration and cooperation between the countries. So the United States and other countries had made commitments to help support other countries in their work, in addition to uh, paying for the work that's happening within 
the United States within those other countries that are also contributing money to this fund? I mean, it feels somewhat obvious that working together is better than working alone. So can you speak to the international element of, of climate change, not only the the ways that countries can work together in order to slow um, slow climate change, but also to perhaps the the threats, the international threats, the foreign policy challenges that will emerge if we do not address this collectively. When we think about climate change, one of the most important considerations is that the atmosphere does not respect national boundaries. So if in the United States we emit carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases, those greenhouse gases do not stay only above the United States. They join the atmosphere that circles the globe. So the emissions that we make as a country affect the atmosphere, affect climate change around the whole globe. Similarly, the emissions that China or India make to the atmosphere affect us in the United States. And so when we think about how emissions affect climate change, we have to acknowledge that our emissions are affecting everyone and everyone has to deal with the impacts of climate change, even if they, even if that country emitted nothing, they will still be affected. And so the Paris Agreement is trying to bring that international cooperation to address this issue because it is a worldwide issue. It's something that we have to address together because the impacts don't stop at national borders. Before I ask you the next question, Emily, let me play you a clip to remind our listeners. I believe this clip is from June 2017 when President Trump announced that he was going to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Agreement. As president, I can put no other consideration before the well-being of American citizens. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States to the exclusive benefit of other countries, leaving American workers, who I love, and taxpayers to absorb the cost in terms of lost jobs, lower wages, shuttered factories, and vastly diminished economic production. Thus, as of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. This includes ending the implementation of the nationally determined contribution and, very importantly, the Green Climate Fund, which is costing the United States a vast fortune. Let me ask you a few quick hitter questions, Emily. Uh, and, and I want to ask you this as Emily Cloyd, the person who really cares about the environment. 
Emily Cloyd, just the person, not the the representative of AAAS, but describe to me the feeling you had when you heard we were pulling out of the Paris Agreement. I was devastated. The Paris Agreement is one of our best options to work with countries around the world and really to work with people around the world on this issue that is the biggest problem we face as a planet. I mean, Allie, you can speak to this. And I think Emily kind of hinted at this, but Allie, as a political scientist, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. It's very rare when virtually every country on earth agrees on a topic, right? <laughs> it, it, that is rare. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, when we were like the only country along with like Syria, not to be in the agreement. And then, oh, by the way, Syria joined in. <laughs> it was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, but on a more serious note, uh, the, the question that I, I and I did want to hear your response to that question. But so you, you, you got me thinking when you said that and, and really insightful about how greenhouse gases don't respect national borders and, um, you know, how this really is a truly global problem. You got me thinking about another issue, which is the lifetime of greenhouse gases. So, I don't want to get too pessimistic, although that is my nature, right, Allie? That is true. Yep. <laughs> you really are a very, very down kind of guy. I'm a Debbie Downer, but uh, without getting too pessimistic, but uh, greenhouse gases do have a lifetime. So, it's not like you can just turn off the faucet and say, okay, well, you know what? We learned our lesson. Now we'll stop emitting greenhouse gases. Now we see how bad it is and things will go back to normal. These gases have a lifetime. And so I guess my question to you is, is there a period of time, maybe not a particular year, but a period of time that we're approaching, whether it's 2030 or 2040, where we fear that maybe we're, we're sort of getting to the point of no return? I don't think it's necessarily that there is a specific year at which we fall off a precipice or otherwise can no longer make change. We continue to learn new things about how the climate system works. There was a recent study uh, that showed perhaps we are not quite as baked in as we have thought in the past, that doesn't mean we get a free pass. However, it does mean that we continue to learn and fine tune our understanding of the atmosphere. The other piece of this is that there's a, a lot of work happening in the technological space about how we can remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. So, in some cases, this is planting more trees, for example. As we plant more trees, as we have more vegetation on the landscape, all of those trees, those plants, they take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and turn it into biomass, into leaves, wood, other parts of the plant. And so we're actually taking some of that greenhouse gas out of the atmosphere and removing it. There are also some more 
manufactured technology uh, solutions that are on the horizon that companies are already working on, that countries are investigating about how, again, we can actually remove some greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and sequester carbon dioxide in a variety of ways. Those are not a free pass either because we are not at a, at a stage where we can just take out greenhouse gases equal to what we admit. However, it gives us an opportunity to have a little bit more time to think about how we can combine different kinds of mitigation, different kinds of emissions reduction, and to think about how we can develop adaptation technologies and adaptation options that will help us respond to the climate change that is already here and that is sort of baked in in the short term. The natural parts of the earth that sequester gases, is that, is that what people are referring to when they talk about carbon sinks? Carbon sinks are things like forests, the ocean, uh, and other parts of the environment that take carbon out of the atmosphere through processes like photosynthesis. Okay, Emily. So let's uh, let's talk about some of the negative consequences of climate change that maybe people don't necessarily think about. So, obviously, everybody's heard of rising sea levels. I think even that gets minimized sometimes. People think, oh, well, you know, some of the beaches will will go away. But in reality, throughout world history, many metropolitan areas were built next to the water for transportation, for um, you know, shipping, for uh, trade, etc. So that's a lot of the world's population that's under threat. But let's move beyond rising sea levels to talk about some things that a lot of Americans maybe don't think about when they think about climate change. So Ali mentioned migration, right? So why might climate change trigger mass migration? And why might that put strains on particular countries around the world? As you just mentioned, things like sea level rise are reducing the amount of communities along the shoreline. And so people who used to live along the shoreline have found that their uh, homes, their communities are sometimes subject to more frequent flooding. In some cases, those communities have been washed away by sea level rise or um, in areas that aren't right on the coast, but perhaps on a river, as we've seen increased precipitation, we see more flooding. And that flooding has uh, washed away parts of the communities. So those people are migrating inland. They're migrating away from the riverbanks to higher ground. And so that's one kind of migration we see. For people who live on islands, uh, particularly in the Pacific. So, uh, for example, in Kiribati, sea levels are rising in such a way that there is no higher ground. The sea levels are overtaking entire islands. And even if they don't overtake the entire island, they get high enough that they can overtake the freshwater sources for that island. And so people can't live there because they 
don't have fresh water. And so the people in the Marshall Islands or in Kiribati need to find a new place to live. And they can't just go to another low-lying island because it has also been affected by sea level rise. So in that case, there are large segments of the populations of these island nations who will need to migrate and may need to leave their country entirely. So migration is something that we're seeing because of sea level rise, but we're also seeing it as temperatures rise. So it gets warmer, say, in the Southwest United States, um, and people decide they don't want to live there maybe part of the year. Uh, so then they, you know, maybe during the summer, they decide I can't live in Arizona. It's too hot. And so for part of the year, then they're moving to the Midwest or they're looking for another place where they can move. But in some cases, it's getting hot enough year round that they're moving or precipitation patterns are changing. So it's not raining enough. It's too dry and they can no longer grow the crops that they need to support themselves, to um, make money if they're farmers. And so they move to a place where there is enough precipitation. So we're seeing this migration both within countries and between countries. I mean, you mentioned uh, a variety of, of things that I think are really important. So waters overtaking communities, overtaking whole island nations, things like uh, freshwater scarcity, you know, crop failure, temperatures just being too hot. Am I, am I wrong? I, I, I could have sworn that I read somewhere that if we sort of continue on the current track that we're on, there could be parts of the world. And again, it's not the entire world. It's not the majority of the world, but there are parts of the world where it might be really impossible even to work outside for long stretches of the time. There are some parts of the United States and other countries where already we see it is very difficult for people who work outside to work during the summer um, because it is so hot. Uh, and so they've had to change their work schedules. Uh, they might be working only in the very early morning and very late evening rather than being able to work throughout the day. They might no longer be able to work outdoors during the summer. And so people who are employed in, say, construction uh, can no longer reliably work during the summer because it's too hot. This is also a problem for people who do sports, so professional athletes, but for also high school athletes, middle school athletes, uh, people who just enjoy going out for a run or playing uh, community sports uh, because it's too hot for them. Right. So, yeah, thank you for that insight. I mean, there are, you know, rising sea levels are an issue and there are really, it's a really important issue, but there are just so many negative consequences that we really have to keep in mind. So, you know, issues like migration, the destruction of animal, plant and insect habitats, you know, and it's extinction you know, water scarcity, resource conflicts, things like crop failure, issues with public health, you know, so air quality and, uh, you know, disease, unforeseen events, like if permafrost melts and that releases more gases than we accounted for, how that's going to impact climate change. So, you know, it's, it's a variety of problems and we, we really need to get a handle on this. 
Um, this is petrifying and it sounds like Mad Max is basically right around the corner. So <laughs> I guess my question is, what can we do? Um, how, you know, what major steps, first of all, can our country do um, in the area of, of either, you know, reducing greenhouse gases, um, electricity production, you know, transportation, like what can we do as a nation and what can we do individually so that we don't end up in the Thunderdome? (laughs) (laughs) I think the way that you just put it there is really important. It's what can we do individually? What can we do in our communities? What can we do as a nation And what can we do as a collection of all of the nations around the world? And it's all four of those that we need to think about. So as individuals, we might make some changes in our own patterns of consumption. So we might use air conditioning less often uh, if we're in a really hot place. Or we might change our own work schedule, our own schedule for working out um, so that we're not um, trying to work in the hottest parts of the day or we're commuting at different times. Um, But of course, individual actions can only take us so far. And so within our communities, our cities, our states, and our nation, we make decisions about bigger ticket things? How do we reduce our emissions? How do we um, change over from a primarily fossil fuel-driven economy to electricity that is generated by solar power, by wind power, by water power? Um, How do we use some of those more renewable energy sources rather than uh, sources that burn fossil fuels and add greenhouse gases to the atmosphere? Sometimes it's difficult to go completely fossil fuel free. And so there are communities that are changing over to things like compressed natural gas. So they're actually taking methane that is coming off of the county landfill and compressing that down and using it to fuel the vehicle. So it's still a fossil fuel. It's, uh, it's still a greenhouse gas. Um, because it's that methane that is coming as the garbage decomposes, or perhaps they are um, taking cow manure if they're a rural county. And so they're actually using that cow manure to, to collect all the methane and then compress that down into natural gas. So they're essentially sort of repurposing the methane before it goes in, into the atmosphere. Um, So again, it's not completely removing the greenhouse gas, but it is um, slowing the rate at which we are adding it back into the atmosphere and reusing it in some way. And then that gives us a little bit more time to transition our technology to a fossil fuel-free method of energy production. How do you feel about bridge technologies that maybe aren't... Like you said, it's not going from dirty to clean. It's not going from coal, you know, to completely renewable that have their own problems, but maybe are cleaner than where we are right now and buy us a little bit of time 
until we get to where we want to go. So I'm obviously thinking about things like nuclear power, but there could be other examples that you have. But are there sort of bridge technologies that could help in the meantime, sort of bridge between dirty and clean? I think bridge technologies are very important because they get us partway there. And if the choice is between do nothing and wait for a completely carbon-free fuel or get partway there, reduce the carbon that's coming out of a fuel now, and then in two, three, ten years, get to that carbon-free fuel. Personally, I would rather be in a situation where I can make some cuts now and get to that no carbon fuel in a few years than just say, I'm going to wait and continue to use this high carbon fuel until we get to that carbon free. Okay. Well, we end every episode of Utterly Moderate by reading the room. We call this segment, He's Mad, She's Happy. Uh, and the reason we call it that is because despite being, I think, friends, are we friends, Allie? No, we're colleagues. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So despite being uh, colleagues, work friends? Mm -hmm. We're peers. Okay. Well, uh, (laughs) despite being that, we are very different. So I am a Debbie Downer. I am pessimistic. I generally think things are going to go horribly. And uh, Allie thinks things are going to go well. She's always sunshine and rainbows. So let's read the room and let's see where we all fall on whether we think that we're going to tackle this problem and we're going to save ourselves or whether we're looking at something more bleak. So I think I'll go first because I think I know that I'm the doom and gloom guy. Um, I'm not feeling good, as you could probably have guessed, Allie. Did you guess that I was going to say I'm not feeling good? I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not feeling optimistic um, as far as I can tell. I think I, I read that this was the warmest decade on record. Uh, it it uh, took that place from the previous decade. Um, and I see the reports that Emily and the AAAS uh, are citing that say that we are not on track. Um, I think that things will become very real. I think that the consequences will spur action, but I think it'll be too late to meet the 1.5 or even two degree threshold. So um, I don't think society is going to collapse. I don't think the earth is going to burn up. But what I do think is that we're going to push past the thresholds that could have kept it reasonable. And we're going to make life we're going to make life harder to live when it didn't have to be. So that's my take. But uh, Emily, you're the expert. So what is your take? Are you positive or negative? How are you feeling? I'm cautiously optimistic. We have a lot of brain power, a lot of willpower, and a lot of community power when we think about how we can respond to climate change. We have people who are working on this problem, what seems like 24-7. 
We have people who are very worried about it, who are thinking up new ways to reduce our emissions, new ways to take carbon and other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and sequester them. And most importantly, we have people who are thinking about how we can adapt to the changes that we're already seeing. It's not perfect. Climate change is a problem that does not affect us all equally. And the countries, the individuals, the communities that have played the smallest role in causing climate change are often the communities that have to deal with the biggest impacts of climate change. It is a huge social justice issue, but it is also an issue which I hope that we will continue to work together on and that we will bring all of the human innovation and enthusiasm that we have brought to many other challenges that have faced us as a species and as a society. So your team, Allie, your team optimism. All right. Well, Allie, you're last up. How are you feeling? Well, after that, I'm feeling much more optimistic. <laughs> and, you know, and Emily brought up a really good point. Um, watching for the last year, right, in a global pandemic, how faced with a whole bunch of folks who denied the severity of a disease that was, you know, obviously quite deadly. It is an easier story to tell about the people who refuse to wear a mask or the people who deny that COVID is even a thing. And instead, I think it's a much better story that Operation Warp Speed worked. I mean, it's the fastest that a vaccine has ever been created. And that shows that science wins. And Emily's right. Like We have a lot of really smart people in this country who see how dangerous this is, who know full well the significance and the consequence of not taking this as seriously as they should. And because of that, and thanks to Emily, I now I go forward with a lot of hope. Um, because for every person who throws a plastic water bottle out their window onto the highway and just litters and doesn't recycle and doesn't even do the smallest amount of work, there are some really super smart people out there who are doing a lot of heavy lifting. So I am feeling significantly better about all of this. So thank you, Emily. You have given me hope. You two realize how uncomfortable this optimism is making me, correct? Yeah, that's why we're doing it. <laughs> well, Not Emily, all sunshine and roses, but there is something that we can save. Well, Emily, we have uh, really enjoyed having you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. This was an incredibly informative and um, very helpful. Thanks. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Please listen carefully. Carefully. Carefully.